everyone, and welcome to episode 163 of the MTG Goldfish Podcast. It's Seth, probably better known as Saffron Olive, and I'm joined again today by Richard. How's it going today, Richard? Hey, Seth, what's going on? Oh, man, uh, lots of surprising stuff, actually. So we have one super huge topic for this week, and that is Dominaria. So a little background on this. Uh, Dominaria spoilers weren't supposed to start until the beginning of April, so two, three weeks from now. But thanks to a quirk of fate and uh, some errors <laughs> on wi- wi- Wizard's End, I, I, they so the whole thing got leaked on a Chinese website. Richard, how does this keep happening? Before we talk about Dominaria, how in the world can this happen like every other set over a period of years? Right, oh. I think Chinese website is not specific enough, Seth. The official <laughs> <laughs> Wizards Chinese website released the release notes, which, you know, it explains all of the rulings and intricacies of the cards. So we got roughly 140 cards out of uh, 249 cards spoiled. Uh, no art, no rarity, no flavor text, but we have <laughs> all the planeswalkers, all the mechanics, basically like every non-vanilla card we got. So, so yeah, yeah. how does it... This is like every spoiler season. It's either some guy in a factory runs off with a sheet, someone accidentally posts something, someone sends something to some media outlet, they post it. I I don't know what's going on, Seth. Uh, Wizards is losing a non-zero amount of money for this. This this cannot be good. I don't know how it keeps happening. So... I'm the content manager at Goldfish, and part of my responsibilities is posting the articles, and I occasionally make mistakes. I put a deck in the wrong format, I, uh, whatever, something like that, forget to put the image in, little things like that, so I can understand how mistakes happen, but that's just me, like, that's me, one person that's making content and posting these articles. Wizards is a huge company owned by an even bigger company. You would think that there would be, like, multiple sets of eyes that would be like, huh, this is actually the release notes for Dominaria, not the release notes for Masters 25 that you're supposed to be publishing today. So I don't understand how it keeps happening. I think there is a silver lining in good news, and I got to get your opinion on this, but my hype level went up significantly when I saw the spoiler. Like, I was already excited for Dominaria, but I feel like, for me, it is what I was hoping for, and it really hit the mark. But before we get to the individual cards and mechanics, what was your first take when you're reading over this imageless leak of 140 cards? Well, first take was, why? Why, Watsy? <laughs> why would you do this? Uh, it's It's... I, I don't I don't like it. I don't oh, not not the set. I, I just don't like being spoiled uh like this. Like A the the set as a whole. It's just so hard to review all the cards. You actually need to sit down and read 140 cards and there's no art. Uh this gives you an appreciation of the art of magic. Maybe it's not the number one thing you look at when you look at a card, but uh, it's kind of sad looking at all these cards with no art, no rarities. There's, like, no flavor. It's just, like, generic pieces of cardboard. Uh, but that aside, uh, I actually really like uh, the flavor of the set. It, it's kind of what we thought Dominaria should be. Uh, maybe it doesn't have Counterspell or, you know, all the broken cards, but there there is a Lawnower Elf in here. Uh, but uh, it's just a lot of iconic characters 
you know, we called it Teferi's back as a planeswalker, uh, Jaya's here as a planeswalker, Joyra is here, and we have the old tribes, uh, we have some new mechanics we'll talk about, but it feels very fitting for a return to Dominaria set. It's, it doesn't feel like it's going to be Battle for Zendikar where you're kind of there, but you're not really there. This this feels like you're right at home on Dominaria. Yeah, that was my impression too. There's a lot of reprints, more so than most sets. There's a lot of callbacks to old cards, old characters. Uh, and we'll talk about a lot of that stuff as we go along. There's... I don't know. I'm just, I'm really excited for it. I like the themes of the set, the ideas of the set. I did want to, though, before we delve into uh, the themes, the mechanics, the cards, just give a warning. If you are someone who's waiting for spoiler season, might be a good idea to skip the podcast this week. We are going to be talking about some of the spoiled cards. We did get some information today as well about spoiler season, and it's always weird for Wizards to know what to do when this happens, uh, and it happens way more than it should and that's disappointing, but uh, they are going to start spoiler season a bit early, on the 21st, which is a week from Wednesday, when it was supposed to be, I think the 2nd of April was supposed to be the start of spoiler season. So they're kind of trying to, like, uh, split the difference, I guess, instead of just being like, alright, spoiler season starts today, or, oh, you gotta wait a whole nother three weeks until spoiler season. They picked, like, literally the middle date between today and when spoiler season was supposed to start. It was like, okay, well, do it then. So it's going to start a little bit earlier. So if you're waiting for official spoilers, uh, that's when they're starting. But today, we got to talk about it. This is the big news. A little sad that it's overshadowing Masters 25, although maybe that's a good thing because a lot of people were pretty angry. And that's, what do you think of the tinfoil hat theory, Richard, that this was not a mistake? I've seen this from some people that I actually kind of respect their opinion, not just like the dark conspiracy theory <laughs> corners of the internet, but that this was a marketing move by Wizards. They heard the Tree of Redemption freak out, the Masters 25 freak out, and they were like, oh my god, we gotta we gotta do something, and they accidentally quote-unquote, release this uh, release notes. I mean, I understand that this is so ridiculous that it must be on purpose, <laughs> but I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't know how much money they're going to lose, like how much hype they lost because of this, but if they wanted to tinfoil hat leak something, they would just leak like, you know, Teferi Planeswalker card or something, not the whole set. So I, I don't think this is on purpose, although the speed at which they addressed this was interesting. It seems like they had some process in place to address leaks. <laughs> Unfortunately, they should have put that effort into, you know, preventing the leak to begin with. <laughs> but my guess is they expected some guy in a factory to, to release the sheet again. And they're like, okay, we're going to do this when this happens. Because their response was... You know, within like what, like 16 hours or something, they had like a, a a statement out, and the next day they put the whole thing out in English. So their response was pretty good, but I, I like to see them tighten up on <laughs> on the actual leak, so we don't have these weird conspiracy theories about how Watsi is uh, releasing Teferi to deflect from uh, Tree of Redemption. <laughs> I definitely got to give him credit for at least addressing it. I know. I think uh, Aaron Forsythe mentioned it in his article today that in when this first happened, they took the like, oh, we're going to like plug our ears and pretend like no one knows what's going, we'll just act like everything is normal. And that was like the worst technique because then 
everyone was like wondering if the cards were real and it was causing all other kinds of problems. So I'm glad that they did address it and they did address it really quickly. Like it's a horrible situation. I, I would be happier. And I think like 99% of magic players would be happier if leaks never happened. So no one's like in support of leaks, but at least wizards is getting better at dealing with them when they happen. Like you said, hopefully they can somehow tighten this up. I guess it's gotta be hard. I, we don't really think about how many people go into making magic sets. Like in the past, we've had uh, someone from a factory leak a sheet. We've had people who translate the cards into all the different language that magic cards are made into. Some of those people have leaked cards. There's a lot of people like we think, oh, there's R&D and there's like, you know, 20 people or whatever that make the magic set. But when you look at the big picture of translations and factories and the printing process, there's actually a lot of people that know the cards in Dominaria ahead of time. So it's kind of, I guess, unsurprising that some of these people don't get overexcited or want some internet glory and decide to leak it out. So I guess it, I, I don't know what they do to plug the leak. Like, I don't know how you make that not happening when you consider everything that goes into making a magic set, but hopefully they figure something out. Time to, time to get into the details, Seth. Lay, lay it, lay it down. What, what is this set bringing? What is Dominaria bringing to the magic world? Okay, so we learned a few big things from the leaks as far as like themes and mechanics, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So we got a few different topics. We're going to talk about Planeswalkers. We're going to talk about the two different mechanics, and then a couple like, I don't even know if they're mechanics or keywords or like changes or flavor things. So we're basically just going to go through everything, talk about some reprints. So Richard, let's start it off with, I mean, probably the most exciting part of the set, honestly, and that is the three Planeswalkers, all of which are representing really iconic characters from the history of Magic. So why don't you tell us what Planeswalkers are in the set, Richard? All right, we have Teferi, we have Karn, and we have Jaya. So let's start with Teferi. Three white and a blue starts with four loyalty, uh, plus one draw a card at the beginning of the next end step untap two lands minus three put target non-land permanent in its owner's library third from the top minus eight you get an emblem with whenever you draw a card exile target permanent and opponent controls oh i love this card it reminds me a lot of my favorite planeswalker uh venser the sojourner like the abilities on this kind of remind me of that so uh, one of the big deals here is a plus one is the draw card mechanic we've seen like dovenbon be a little bit lacking and not really played but that has the negative one draw card ability so you can't just keep drawing a card and drawing a card the plus one is really nice untapping the lands a nice little bonus like you can tap out to play something on your main phase and then still have mana for like a fatal push or a sensor or something and not a literal counter spell but you can still like interact with your opponent on their turn and then the ultimate is very venser-esque all you do is draw cards and eventually you're going to just kill your opponent from drawing cards so what do you think richard how good is teferi uh good because it's basically omnixilis <laughs> <laughs> plus one draw card minus three removal uh interesting removal because it puts it's a non-land permanent, first of all, so it hits non-creatures, and uh, you, you put it third from the top, so they have to redraw it, and uh, it's basically the tuck rule, kind of, even though the tuck rule doesn't exist in Commander anymore, but you, you get to put stuff into the library, and you can be clever and shuffle and things like that if you feel like it. So I, I think Teferi will be 
you know, okay to, you know, he'll be playable, but he's not going to dominate standard or anything. We've seen this kind of Planeswalker before. Uh, the real question is, will we have legitimate instants to do stuff with when you untap two lands with this plus one? Because it is more than just draw a card. It's draw a card, get two mana, but that mana comes uh, at instant speed, so to speak, because you don't get it till your end step. Yeah, so I think that is a big question. And we already have some stuff. A lot of the good stuff is outside of the colors. Like, Fatal Push is probably the thing I think of most as far as taking advantage of that. But you can use random counter spells. Like, Negate is not horrible there. Sensor. But I think you're right. It is a 5-mana Planeswalker. And that means the bar is pretty high for it to actually be a standard staple. But I think we've seen, like, 5-mana Jace with plus 1 draw card. Like, we've seen those cards show up in Control Deck. So I could imagine Teferi can probably do something similar because it it fits kind of in the same space as some of the Jaces we've seen in the past. And I think Obnixilus is a really good comparison, right down to the fact that it has an ultimate that wins you the game as cards are drawn. Like, it, it is very similar to the blue-white version of Obnixilus, but... All right, great designer search question, Seth. What exactly is white about Teferi? Is it the tucking? (laughs) I think the tucking is, like, unexpectedly absent or whatever that card is. So I think the tuck part... I think blue can go on top of the library, but I don't think blue can go cards down in the library. And then I guess the... The exiling ultimate is pretty white-ish. Like, blue doesn't really exile permanence. So uh, I, I, I just ignored the ultimate altogether, but you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so I think those are the, the two main parts. The top ability feels pretty much just mono blue, though, the plus one. So how do you feel about doubling season, where you basically just ultimate to fairy immediately, and then you get the most broken ultimate ever? <laughs> uh Yes, it works. I feel like every time a Planeswalker is printed, we we talk about it, and rightly so, because it is really sweet. Yes, it's super cool, but every Planeswalker is super cool if you have a doubling season out. It's a very low bar for a Planeswalker to get over if you have a doubling season. And so it's sweet, but I don't think it's any sweeter than just like, oh, my Nahiri gets an Emrakul, or oh, I make infinite Jace Cunning castaways. Like, your Planeswalker just, yes, it combos with doubling season. It's really cool. All right, Karn <laughs> says, hold my beer i don't combo with doubling season here comes card scion of urza four generic mana starts with five loyalty uh plus one reveal the top two cards of your library an opponent chooses one of them put that card in your hand and exile the other with a silver counter on it minus one put a card you own with a silver counter on it from exile into your hand minus two Create a zero zero colorless construct artifact creature token with this creature gets plus one plus one for each artifact you control. This is the most surprising of the planeswalkers to me. This is not anywhere near what I expected from another Karn planeswalker. Karn like, sucks. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I actually, what happened? I actually think this card is good. I'm just very surprised that it's four mana, doesn't really interact with the opponent like that's what i was expecting from karn but 
I think that it actually is a really strong, potentially a strong planeswalker. You definitely got to build around it, but we have like treasure tokens in standard. It seems really easy that you just play good cards that happen to make treasures and maybe some other artifacts, scrap heap scrounger, bowmat courier. And at the worst case, Karn is going to be like four mana, make a five, five, make a six, six, which is pretty good, especially since you can negative two twice before you run out of power. So I think you got to build around it. But I actually think that Karn is the best of the Planeswalkers that are that we have seen from Dominaria. You don't like it, though, Richard? I don't like Karn. They should have made, like, a monstrous 12-mana <laughs> Karn that only Tron can play, and it does nutty things. Because this Karn is kind of sad, going from Karn liberated to... to this. Uh, at least the minus two should have counted cards with silver counters on them. Or at least there should have been some internal synergy here. But basically... You get, like, you draw a card your opponent lets you draw, and then the next turn, you might be able to draw that uh, with the minus. And then just making artifact creatures, I don't know, it feels kind of like, um, what's his face, Tezzeret, where you need to put him in, like, a strictly artifact deck. You can't just jam him anywhere, and that makes him not as exciting. I... Uh, he is big for four mana at five loyalty. He is big, but... Ah, he doesn't protect himself, and it's standard. You're not going to have artifact lands. You're not going to have a bunch of useless mana rocks around. You can't just pop out like a 4-4 or 5-5 easily. You got to do a lot of work to get those constructs to be respectable. So I'm going to I'm gonna say that while obviously not as strong as Karn Limberated, I think that this version of Karn is actually more in line with... Karn traditionally. Like, if you look back to original Karn, Karn Silver Golem, Karn Silver Golem was... That was the bad Karn, too. (laughs) But it was was all about interacting with artifacts, turning non-creature artifacts into creatures, and then Karn's Touch turned a non-creature artifact into an artifact creature. So I feel like if we're going about history and trying to, like, call back to old characters, I feel like this is more on point with who Karn was, you know, 20 years ago than Karn Liberated, which is actually probably not really anything like Karn's traditional character. It's just, like, colorless and really, really strong. I don't know. I I think if you wanted to go, like, Karn Karn, you could have done something like plus one, put, like, a, a silver counter on up to two target creatures, minus one, like, exile it, exile a creature with a silver counter or maybe like exile a creature with a silver counter you control draw two cards or something Uh, all right uh, you gotta turn stuff into like artifacts or something as card this one you just you just pop out constructs well we can't do construct tribal and standard i've had people that's I get all these deck lists for doing the deck text, the Fishbowl Thursday deck text, and Construct Tribal is a very popular submission for Fishbowl <laughs> Thursday. So maybe, now that we have Karn on the top end, maybe we'll actually play Construct Tribal. I do agree with you that Karn is probably the strongest and most likely to see play Planeswalker here. But we we got to see the Planeswalker deck Planeswalkers. We don't know yet. <laughs> That's, that is true. We might have another Ajani situation. We do have one more Planeswalker, though. We have Jaya Ballard. So, Richard, yep. what does Jaya do? <clears throat> we got Chandra. I mean, Jaya Ballard. <laughs> two red, red, red. Five starting loyalty. Plus one. Add red, red, red to your mana pool. Spend this mana only to cast instant or sorcery spells. Plus one. Discard up to three cards. Then draw that many cards. 
minus 8, you get Emblem with. You may cast instant and sorcery cards from your graveyard. If a card cast this way would be put in your graveyard, exile it instead. Uh, so, I like Jaya Ballard because I think it is maybe the first Planeswalker we've seen that seems very much designed to be part of a combo deck. Like, this is... Like, if you're somehow going to play Storm, Planeswalker Storm, Jaya Ballard is, like, <laughs> the perfect card for that. The problem is, that seems like a really niche market. Like, I don't know if Planeswalker Storm is a thing. And Jaya Ballard doesn't really do anything in a typical game of Magic. Like, I guess drawing three and discarding three, or discarding three and drawing three, which is actually kind of tricky, because that means you have to be playing a red deck and have three cards left in your hand to be able to discard after you play your five-mana threat, which usually five-mana is, like, the top end of your red deck. The adding mana, I don't know what you'd do with that. I think while you can probably build a really fun janky deck with this card, I can't see this being anywhere near playable in any format. Yeah, all, all of the pieces, all, all of the abilities, you think Storm, you're like, okay, this is like Pyretic Ritual, and this <laughs> is Past in Flames, but then you're like, I gotta tick it up like <laughs> three times, and on the fourth turn, I can Past in Flames, and this costs me five mana, and, you know, if I'm hellbent because my opponent is thought seizing me because, like, they should, then how am I gonna discard anything to draw a card? It's like, it just not, none of this actually works. So. So yeah, I, I don't know what you would do with this. <laughs> Maybe you just have like really slow standard storm, where it's like a turn six storm kill, <laughs> and that's what you do with Jaya Ballard. I I don't know. Maybe maybe it's standard storm, but I, I just can't see Jaya being used for anything useful here, especially since that plus one is limited to instants or sorceries. You can't even like play a creature to like block for Jaya Ballard. You kind of just tap out and hope they don't have anything. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, doubling season though, Richard. You can with doubling season. It's literally a strictly worse past in flames. It's like nine mana past in flames. We got yeah. there. <laughs> we figured it out. But but she lives. So next turn, <laughs> you can then ritual. Oh uh, well, those are the planeswalkers. So I think our rankings. If I was going to rank them in terms of just strictly seeing play. I would go Karn, although with the caveat that it's in very specific decks. You gotta build around it. Teferi, I think, would be next. You can probably jam it in any blue-white control deck as a two-of or something, and it'll be pretty good, but just how good it'll depend on the meta. And then Jaya, way down at the bottom. I don't know how you ever play that card. Maybe it'll be fun for, like, casual play or something, but uh, how does that line up with your rankings, Richard? Uh, yeah, I think that's about right. Although I'm, I'm gonna say the Planeswalker deck, Planeswalkers, like no joke, are are gonna battle for <laughs> top spot because they've been getting more and more competitive. And I think this 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 cast of Planeswalkers is a bit weak, so you might actually see some of those other Planeswalkers being played. Well, let's move on. We got a lot to cover today, so let's talk mechanics from Dominaria. And first off, we have the big new mechanic from the set, which is really interesting and fairly unique. That is Saga. So, Richard, why don't you give us an example of a Saga card so we can understand how this new mechanic works? Okay, we have one card with art, which is the card Watsi gave us today, Phyrexian Scriptures. And it's a mythic, two black-black and if you actually look at it, it's like uh, it's like a full art card with a scroll going down the side, and it says, "As this saga enters, uh, and after you draw, after your draw step, add a lore counter, sacrifice after three, so one, 
put a plus one plus one counter on up to one target creature. That creature becomes an artifact in addition to its other types. Two, destroy all non-artifact creatures. Three, exile all cards from all opponents' graveyards. And enchantment saga. So, so it's like an enchantment with suspend where after every counter you get some some effect that goes off. Yeah, so just to run down what this actually would do in a game. So you untap, you cast your Fraxian Scriptures, right away you get to put that plus one plus one counter on one of your creatures, then your next turn, the phrasing here is weird, it says at the end of your draw step, what that actually means is at the beginning of your pre-combat main phase is essentially how that plays. So as you start your pre-combat main phase on the following turn, you blow up everything that's not an artifact, so you get to keep that one creature and then on your next beginning of pre-combat main phase or end of draw step as they're wording it then you would exile all cards from your opponent's graveyards and you would lose the Frexian scripture so I think the the best comparison for this which is a little weird is it's kind of like this weird temporary oh no what's the mechanic uh cogwork the cogworkers from unstable what was the name of that Oh, contraptions. Yeah, it, it reminds me somewhat of contraptions in how it actually works. Like, they are a little different because of the triggering when they enter the battlefield, but basically at the start of your first pre-combat main phase, you crank it to the next sprocket and do something, <laughs> and so it's kind of like the black border version of that. So what do you think of this card, I guess, Richard, and mechanic in general? Like, is this powerful? Is it good? Do you like it? Um, I mean, I think... It's gotta be good. It's like four mana wrath with suspend one. Like that alone is good enough when you get to save your creature. And then for some reason, the following turn, you get to clear everyone's graveyards. So ah, the mechanic is weird. It seems weird, but I guess it's like new and innovative. We haven't really seen that aside from, you know, uh, actual silver board mechanics. So it'll be interesting to see what they can do with this. I'm assuming this interacts with doubling season. Do you get to skip sagas? if you just put more counters on? Uh, you would... I believe you would... What is this, a doubling season podcast? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a counter, right? So I you think can... you would get both, because one of the weird things about it is the triggering, it doesn't just trigger at the beginning of your end of your draw step or however that's such weird wording but it doesn't just trigger based on the number of counters it triggers when a counter is added so i think if you doubling seized end you would basically skip up from one to three if i'm understanding it correctly and there would no not be the second counter yeah that also it's weird a lot of people have asked about solemnity and thinking like oh i can set this on destroy all non-artifact creatures play a solemnity do that every single turn but that doesn't actually work because the counter isn't being added and that's what actually triggers the ability on the saga like is the counter going on to it so i think you can maybe manipulate the counters like if you have a way to remove a counter add a counter you would and it would trigger at instant speed there's no timing restriction so if you have a way to remove a counter at instant speed or i don't know you vampire hex mage to reset it down to zero counters then i believe it would uh it would just keep going and going so there are some tricks you can do there but it's definitely very unique and weird yeah, I was thinking, yeah, the Hex Parasite or, uh, you know, those kind of effects. And then just every turn, Wrath the Board. Or, like, Proliferate. I think Proliferate, you would actually get, if you're at one counter and you pl proliferated, you go to the next counter and then you get the next one. Or Double Proliferate, you'd probably get both, like, n number two and number three. So, 
it's interesting to build around. What do you think of the aesthetic of this card, Richard? Do you like how it looks? Uh, I think it's fine. I don't know. <laughs> it's like kind of full art, but then it's not, and there's a scroll. And then you actually see the Phyrexian watermark on the scroll in this card. Uh, I think it's fine. I, I don't know. When I play it on Moto, 100% guarantee it's not going to look like this, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> it's just going to look like a Planeswalker or something on Moto, so... So I don't know. I think it's okay. Not nothing like revolutionary, but like it's 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 like an okay looking card. <laughs> I really like it. My initial reaction was I thought it looked really cool. So I'm excited to see them still like trying new things with that. And I think it works well with the counters being added and how the card works mechanically. So I do like that aspect of it. So we'll see. They feel like very hard cards to evaluate in the context of standard, just because they're they're pretty unique in how they work like this isn't just oh it's very similar to a past mechanic other than the silver bordered stuff so what are some of the other sagas that we got richard that are exciting potentially uh yeah i just want to point out that you can uh you can disenchant these things so it it adds like a a lot of interaction here when you think you get a suspend wrath uh, and your opponent just untaps and disenchants it uh, you might be a little sad. Oh, along <laughs> the same lines, like, that is a downside, but also potentially an upside, because you can reset it with your Flicker Wisp or something. So you can be sneaky, or some of them, as we'll see, like, with Fall of the Thran, they kind of have, like, a powerful first ability, and then the later abilities are actually arguably a drawback, depending on how you build your deck. And then if you can disenchant it or cast out it, you would prevent the future ones from happening. So I really like the complexity uh, and all the different ways you can play them, because there's some cool tricks I think you could do with the Saga Cycle. All right, let's talk about Fall of Thran. As you alluded to, five and a white. Uh, one, destroy all lands. Two and three, each player returns two lands from their graveyard to the battlefield. I can't believe they printed this card. When It's six mana, though. It's an Armageddon. It's so slow. And then it's like, Armageddon, joking, have some lands back. (laughs) You just got to build around it. I am not above playing a Sentinel Totem or some sort of Tormod script effect to turn this into an actual (laughs) Armageddon. (laughs) I I am just, I am shocked, really. Like, sure, it's not literal Armageddon, but they don't print cards that say destroy all lands. That's not a thing that Wizards prints, like, just period. So I was surprised to see that they actually printed this card, and I said this on Twitter, but I think Wizards is underestimating my uh, ability and desire to play horrible decks if it means I get to make my opponent not play Magic. <laughs> so I plan on playing a lot of Fall of the Thran. I might lose a lot, but at least I'm going to make some opponents really miserable as I'm losing. <laughs> I really wanted it to be like one less mana so that you don't have to play the janky deck, but you can play it in a serious... Like, can you imagine going Gideon into Fall of Thran or something? <laughs> like an actual curve that looks... Or like turn one Lawnmower Elves and then you actually power this out at a respectable turn. Because six means, you know, seven is when it Armageddon's and it's really slow for a do-nothing. And then it's like... You don't lock them out because they, they, they get to put lands back, so you actually need to play another card to get rid of their lands. Well, so 
it does Armageddon when it enters the battlefield, because you get that first counter when it enters. So oh, it is like right. just six mana blow everything up. So there's no suspend on this one, really. The suspend is the drawback, but still, it is true. Six mana is a little bit more than you'd want to pay for an Armageddon, but I've tried to find Armageddons for modern even, and they don't, they just don't exist. Like, I guess you have maybe uh, Wildfire and cards like that that can play like Armageddons, but Destroy All Lands is just not text outside of, like, uh, nine-mana type cards like Obliterate that actually shows up in cards in modern. So it's just been so long since we've had this text on a card that even though it's six mana, even though, yes, you got to build around it, your opponent gets land backs, it's still really exciting to me just to see that text on a magic card in 2018. I feel like this is Wizard's test to see if players can handle land destruction. It's kind of like that, oh, what's that counter spell where uh, you counter a spell and then the the opponent draws two cards and you draw one? Oh, Arcane Denial, I think. Yeah, it's like, counter spell, but haha, joking, draw a card, <laughs> right? Like, don't feel so bad, you're still my friend. Right? That's like Fall Thread. It's like Armageddon, but okay, you get to slowly rebuild. It's not over yet, right? Like, don't leave, you can still play. <laughs> All right, uh, let's move on to the the red saga. We have one in a red. Uh, one, discard your hand. Always a good, always a good start. <laughs> two, draw two cards. <laughs> Three, if a red source you control would deal damage to a permanent or player this turn, it deals that much damage plus two to that permanent or player instead. Are they going to give us, like, Grape Shot or something? Like, uh, is Storm hiding somewhere <laughs> in Standard? Like, I th- this reminds me, I said this precast when you were talking, of Pyromancer, or, well, Pyromancer Swath, I think it's called, the, the number three mode on this, where it doubles, or does plus two damage to everything, which means if you can Grape Shot, every Grape Shot's, like, three damage. I don't know how you play this card in Standard, though, like... The drawbacks are real. Discarding your hand is a pretty big cost, especially when number two is just draw two cards. It's not even like three cards or something. So, and then what do you do with the plus two damage? I guess you throw like as many lightning strikes as possible at your opponent's face in that turn I, and I, hope that it's enough. I, I figured out this card set that it is not meant for burn. It is meant for goblins. Ooh. You okay. have five goblins. This is, you know, this is an extra 10 damage. Right, oh. so it's meant for a go wide aggro deck, I believe, and it's like I hope you have a wrath in two turns, otherwise you're dead, right? And you just slam them with tokens, and each token deals an additional two. I guess it counts for your spells too, so you kind of dump your hand with cheap goblins, use this to quote unquote refill with two cards, and then go for an alpha strike the next turn. I think that's how this is supposed to be used. Uh, that makes sense. So I was skipping right over the fact that it's just red source. So that does mean your creatures deal damage too. I was thinking of spells, but you're right. That does actually make the guard a little bit better. Like in theory, you could play this in your Ramanomp red deck, like your Earthshaker Kenras and just dump your hand. Getting empty-handed for Hazrats may be a good thing. You use this to like make sure you have zero cards in hand, and then you just kill your opponent with your random red creatures a couple of turns later. Mm-hmm. All I right. actually really like that, this card now. I think it, it might be actually too strong. <laughs> <laughs> We've done a complete 180 on this card. <laughs> be- because if you just have like three sources of damage, this is a two-mana six-damage burn spell, which is insanely powerful for closing out games. So you just need to have 
any respectable board state, which mono red, you know, like not even a token deck, but just, you know, Ramunap red will have, right? And if you go tokens, this thing gets even more absurd. So I actually kind of like it. And it's sweet that you don't have to spend the mana on it. That's one of the big things with all these. We were talking about the Phyrexian scriptures or whatever. Like, yes, it's a wrath, which is nice, but the fact that it's a wrath that triggers for free and you still have all your mana available so you can just immediately replay a bunch of creatures, that's actually a big swing. So the fact that you're getting this plus two damage on everything, that means you're not, like, you still have your mana left over. So maybe you do need a lightning strike for five damage to finish off after you get in with your creatures, like, that's a nice bonus, too, with all these cards, is that once you pay that initial cost, you're getting that ability for free each turn. Yep. All right. Uh, green Saga. One and a green. One, two, until your next turn, creatures you control gain tap, add one mana of any color. Three, put a plus one, plus one counter on each creature you control. Those creatures gain Vigilance, Trample, and Indestructible until end of turn. Meh. I mean, <laughs> I guess I guess it's fine. I don't know. I I we don't know the rarity on any of these cards, so maybe this is like an uncommon or something. No. Maybe you think it's, it's the rare? It's at least rare, if not uh, mythic. I don't think this card's actually actually that strong. Like Cryptolith Rites was good, but the, that was good in decks that. I don't know. I guess it's free. If you have two creatures, you, like, spend your land mana to cast it, and then you immediately can use it like this weird creature ritual type effect where you tap all your creatures to cast more stuff, but I don't know. Outside of, like, some weird combo-y situation where you play it and then make a bunch of mana with your creatures, the card doesn't really excite me. Yeah, I don't like this card either. All right, that that plus, that, that third level saga should be at least overrun. Getting yeah. plus one, plus one on your... I guess it's a counter, so it's permanent, but plus one, plus one usually isn't <laughs> the most impactful thing. And if you need indestructible, unless you're killing them, they'll just alpha strike you back and kill you, so <laughs> it's not as useful. Maybe if you had lifelink as well, it would be better, but not not as good as the red one. I think the red one is much, much better than this. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's move on from the sagas, our new mechanic, to our returning mechanic in Dominaria, which is kind of a classic in its own right, Kicker. So Kicker is coming back. Richard, why don't you give us an example of a Kicker card in case we have some people that have never played with the mechanic before? All right, this this might be the best card in the set. We have Drun, the <laughs> Lonely King, 4 Green Green, 5 5. The type line is Legendary Creature Ape Warrior. Yes? <laughs> Yes, we have a legendary ape. <laughs> Kicker three. If Grun was kicked, it enters a battlefield with five plus one plus one counters. When Grun attacks alone, double its power and toughness this turn. Eh. Eh. If you kick it, it's a 10 10 and it attacks as a 20 20. Yeah. I guess, I guess there's probably some cool things you could do with that. I mean, uh, kicking it also, it's a nine mana total if you kicked it. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it's cool. It is cool. It is legendary. Like, we're going to talk about that in a minute, because that's one of the other themes of this. A million cards are legendary. So I really love stuff like that for Commander. Like, legendary ape warrior is really sweet. I don't think we even have, like, an ape legend, so maybe you can play ape tribal or something. As far as standard, I don't... I guess it's a 5-5 five, five that attacks for 10 for 6 mana, which I guess is okay. And then, or a 10-10 that attacks for 20. I guess the other thing we're missing is maybe 
if there's like a combo, if you can give this like double strike and trample like a teamer battle rage, that's a pretty scary attacker even without the kicker cost so maybe there's something that enables it in standard but just as a 5-5 that attacks for 10 is that really that much better than a Verderous Gear Hulk or something it seems like kind of in a similar space plus it's legendary which is we got to remember a drawback when standard is concerned compared to commander where it's a good thing yeah, I mean, uh, essentially everything you said can be summed up with dies to Doomblade. <laughs> uh, does nothing, kind of dies instantly, so kind of bad in standard. But the as funny the commander in mono green, <laughs> can you imagine attacking as a twenty twenty and then sacrificing it to draw twenty cards after? That does sound. Uh, that with seems like it would fall or whatever those green cards are. Oh, that that is the dream. It seems like <laughs> it fits right into like Galta. If you're playing Galta EDH, that does seem good. Uh, let's 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 talk about uh, dragons. We have two red red four four legendary creature dragon, kicker three flying. When it enters the battlefield, if it was kicked, create Carix Bladewing, a legendary four four red dragon creature with flying. Name tokens are so cool. I always I just I like name tokens for some reason. This card it seems pretty reasonable to me. I'm having a really hard time evaluating a lot of these cards because they're legendary. And if that was just a normal card, it feels like arguably just an upgraded broodmate dragon. The fact that it's legendary, I don't know I don't know how that's gonna play out. Like a four four fire for four that's on curve anyway. We played Thunderbreak Regent not that long ago. It was a standard staple. Getting two 4-4 four, four flyers for seven, that's like one more mana than Broodmate, but still you're doing it in mono red, so that's an upside. You don't have to be in three colors for it. So both of those rates seem pretty good, but I don't know. Like, how many of these can you play in your deck? Like, can you play four copies of this because it's a legend? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Yeah, legendary kind of sucks because what you would expect to happen is you play this and then say your opponent has a piece of removal, say they remove Varix. Uh, you can't play this to get three dragons because your token will legendary rule the existing token. So there's some awkwardness here. You can't replenish like half of the card uh, by legendary rule the other half. But it is a four mana, four, four flying with yeah. upside. And it's a dragon. So I like it. Well, since we're uh, since we're talking about a legendary thing and legendary and what it does to standard, I guess this is a good time to say we have legendary as basically one of the themes of this set. I did not count the text only spoiler is actually really hard to like parse through and make sense of, but there's got to be like. 30, 40, 50 legendary creatures in the set, and that's just out of the 140 that we got in this leak. So, Richard, uh, what do you think of all these legendaries? Uh, they're cool? <laughs> I mean, we have a lot of legendaries we didn't talk about, so uh, we'll talk about them later, but there, there's a bunch that will make EDH players very, very happy. So we, we get new legendaries. Uh, we also have legendary spells, which is interesting. So I, I like the theme. I I don't know how I feel about legendary being like one of those special keywords now that we can do random things with, but it, it is cool to get a bunch of flavorful things given that we, we're going back to Dominaria. Yeah, this seems like 
it's got to be one of the best sets, period, for Commander that they've ever made. Like, just the fact that there's so many Legends is going to be huge for the Commander format. As far as Standard, like I was just saying, I don't know what to make of some of these cards. Like, a lot of the cards, when I read them, I'm like, oh, that could be pretty powerful. And then I remember, oh, that's a Legend? Like, is it powerful enough that it makes up for the fact that if I draw two of them, like, I'm, you know, drawing dead cards? How does that actually play out? So I'm going to be really curious to see if these cards change standard deck building. Like, if we're say- seeing a lot of decks that are playing two and three ofs rather than four ofs to take advantage of cards that are powerful, but you don't really want to draw more than one of. So I think that's going to be interesting. You mentioned legendary spells. Legendary sorceries are confirmed basically exactly like normal. Normal sorceries, but you can't cast them unless you have a legendary creature or a planeswalker when you're trying to cast them. What do you think of that, Richard? Is that do you like it? Is legendary sorceries a good thing, a bad thing, powerful thing? Uh, I mean, the cards are powerful. So take uh, Urza's Rudeness Blast, four and a white. Uh, so you can only cast it if you control a legendary creature or planeswalker, and it's exile all non-land permanents that aren't legendary. So just straight up, like, remove everything that's not legendary for 5 mana. Very powerful, but you need a legendary on the battlefield. And, like you said, there's a drawback to playing legendaries. So, I don't know about standard, but EDH, this is great because your deck comes with a built-in legendary, i.e. your commander. So, these cards will be easy to activate in EDH, but in standard, might be a bit rough. Yeah, I think... That's definitely a big question, like just how many legendaries can you play in standard, but it's going to be great for Commander. And the upside is with the legendary sorceries, you do get a reasonable amount of power, like Karn's Temporal Sundering. Six mana, extra turn, also get to bounce a non-land permanent. That's a pretty good rate. Like, that's a that's a pretty good rate for a six mana extra turn spell. So you are getting a bit of extra power, like a, a little bit more power, or like with Urza's Ruinous Blast, like you said, kind of like a one mana deduction in cost to make up for the fact that you need the legendary on the battlefield. Whether enough any of them are strong enough that you're like, I'm going to overload my deck with legends just to take advantage of a legendary sorcery, I think we got to wait and see as far as that's concerned. Uh, finally, to wrap up our Dominaria discussion, two more really quick topics on the way out the door. First, we have a new, I guess it's a keyword, uh, historic, Richard. What is historic? Uh, historic just means artifact, legendaries, and sagas. I don't agree with artifacts. (laughs) It's such a common type. I don't know why it's historic now, but I guess the other things are historic. Yeah, it, it is a little weird. I'm assuming artifacts is more for, like, gameplay purposes, because legendaries and sagas would be too restrictive, but it'll be interesting. We saw, um, uh, Joyra as a returning character that draws a card whenever you cast a historic, so artifact, legendary, or saga. Uh, Joyra's familiar, makes them a little bit cheaper, so we'll see what they actually do as far as gameplay. I guess it it fits the theme of, like, history and the game's past, so I don't know. I think, I guess it's fine. It's probably the part of the set I'm least excited about from what we've seen so far. Yeah, I mean, but it's not that major. I guess it's just, like, putting a name to existing types. Uh, like you said, there was Joyra by the Light Captain. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's just there. It's not... I don't think it's one of the big mechanics of the set. And then, uh, last but not least, reprints, Richard. So reprints 
man, I'm I'm really excited for this. Llanowar Elves, Goblin Warchief, Siege Gate Commander, Verdant Force, the Checklands from Innistrad, the other half of the Ixalan cycle. Are you surprised? Are you happy with the reprints? What's your take on those? I'm surprised by Lawnmower Elves. I thought they're like, no more one-mana mana dorks, and then here we are, <laughs> the original mana dork. But uh, Goblins getting a lot of support in Standard and consequently in Modern. These two cards are new to Modern. Uh, Verdant Force, one of my favorite cards of all time. There are other Sapling synergies in the deck, so uh, I'm, I'm hoping for a Standard Sapling deck. And Innistrad... Checklands, and eh, I don't care anymore. Since they printed the enemy fast lands, these things barely have modern playability, so they're they're kind of just there. Uh, they're very corner case. Uh, Would have been exciting a while back where they were really expensive, but since we have the fast lands now from, uh, where did the fast lands come from? Ether Revolt. Uh, Kaladesh? Kaladesh, yeah. Kaladesh, uh, you know, these are not as exciting for for modern and uh, older formats. I will say I am very excited, actually, for the checkline reprint. Uh, not because, like you said, it is true that they aren't as relevant for, like, tournament play anymore. But for standard, they even out the mana. I've definitely run into this a lot in deck building. The ally mana is a lot better than the enemy mana. So evening that out is going to be nice. The other thing is... These cards are weirdly expensive for building budget decks. Cards like Isolated Chapel, Woodland Cemetery, they're like six, seven, Sulfur Falls even more, ten bucks in paper. So while the ally versions that were just reprinted in Innistrad are really cheap and like the some of the best budget dual lands you can build with, these ones were too expensive to really be budget lands. But now that they're coming back in what seems to be a really high supply set, people are hyped for Dominaria. I think a lot will be opened. It should bring the prices way, way down and make them legitimate budget options for modern. And like you, I'm definitely shocked by Llanowar Elves. I was That's one of the cards, like, when we were kind of, like, joking and, like, oh, they can print Lightning Bolt, they can print Counterspell. I'm pretty sure Llanowar Elves was a green card on our list when we were talking about that. So while we didn't get Lightning Bolts and Counterspells green, like the impact that's going to have on standard is going to be huge. Like, I don't think people remember how powerful it is to play Llanowar Elves into a green three drop or a Nissa or something on turn two is just such a huge swing. So green, it's been the best color in standard for what the last two or three years. And it seems like it's probably not going away. Get those fatal pushes ready. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> 2018 push the elf. That That's the new expression we're going with. Yeah. That's what new magic players will learn. They're like bolt the bird. What are these cards? You mean push the elf? <laughs> <laughs> I oh yeah, and the the last thing, real quick, and then we got to get to fish mail because we're running long. Along with uh, actual reprints, we get a lot of cool callbacks. Like we had a new Squee, Squee the Immortal, obviously a reference to Squee Goblin Nabob. We got Knight of Malice, which is kind of like a new updated version of Black Knight. There's a White Knight uh, member of the cycle too. So I don't know. I'm excited for that. Like it plays into the my overall. Excitement for this set where I was hoping that this is what the set was going to be. All these callbacks, references to old cards, powerful characters, good reprints, and I feel like I'm pretty happy with us having seen maybe half the set from this league. I feel like they actually did hit the mark with this. It doesn't feel like Battle for Zendikar, where you take this beloved thing with beloved characters and change it so much that it doesn't doesn't have those feelings and the nostalgia for, you know, thinking back on the past. So I feel like, based on this leak, I feel like they really did nail it. Yeah, thank God it wasn't, like, 
return return to Dominaria overrun by Phyrexians. Yeah. Surprise! <laughs> everyone everyone you loved is dead, and it's just Elish Norn. Yeah. No, it, it was actually Dominaria. So. Oh, yeah, Emrakul's on Dominaria now. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> oh, what I do have to say is no dwarves. No dwarves, Seth. The other, uh, that is that is a little sad. I know, like, Atogs was another one people were asking for, so there is some stuff that's not there, but I feel like they hit a lot of expectations yeah. from what we've seen so far. And also wanted to mention, super quick, remember, too, the next set after Dominaria is a core set. So when you see, like, goblins, you see um, the sapperling stuff, some of these tribes that aren't supported in standard, pretty good chance that those tribes, maybe if they're not good enough when Dominera releases, will also, like, carry over to the core set, get some more reprints, get some more support, because those are, like, pretty classic tribes that could easily be supported in a core set as well. Uh, anyway, I think that brings us to the end of our Dominaria discussion. Any last thoughts, Richard, before we move forward to our fish mail? Uh, set is hype. It's not releasing for, like, months, but yeah, it's hype. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I think the official release is, like, April 27th, and the pre-release is before that, so we do have a ways to go, but not next podcast, but the podcast after, we will have started the official spoiler season so definitely expect all the usual stuff articles and spoiler videos and podcast discussion it'll be a lot better once we get the art for the cards i definitely learned from the spoiler that just text only magic cards are rough like they're not fun to look at they're hard to make sense of i didn't realize how much the actual like art and design of a magic card plays into being able to like understand what that card does yeah even like flavor text kind of miss flavor text when you don't have it like anywhere <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, let's uh let's do some fish mail, Richard. All right, let's move on to fish mail. If you have your questions, send them to at mtggoldfish with the hashtag mtgfishmail, and we'll get to your questions on air. First question, Josh Pig, what would it take for Watsi to make a successful retail product targeted at Cube? Ooh, uh, I mean, isn't that master sets? That I, are, that's what I was gonna say. That's like literally a Cube draft <laughs> plus a Cube. Yeah, I, I think that cubing is so individual that I don't think that a, like, pre-constructed cube would be very popular, because it's kind of about, like, uh, expressing yourself is how I understand cube building in the cubing community. So I feel like Master Sets is about as good as it gets. All right, Raging Duck 729 what decks for each format would you recommend for someone breaking into Magic Online? Ooh. Well, Modern is easy. I always recommend the 8-Wack Goblins deck. It's budget-friendly. You can play a ton of games because it's aggro, so it's easy for grinding with. Pretty easy to pick up, not super complicated. Uh, as far as standard, I guess maybe like wait a month for the Challenger decks and build like the mono-red aggro deck or something like that is what I would say. And Legacy, I have no idea what you start Legacy with. Burn? I, I don't I don't know yeah. if the actual cheapest deck in Legacy. I think is Burn anymore. is probably is probably the right choice. I don't know how competitive it is in the grand schemes. Like I think it's competitive enough, but you're probably better off starting with um probably better off starting with modern or standard anyway. Yeah. Uh Brother Vance IRL. Possible solution to the missing host problem. Hold a competition. The Great Goldfish Search. Challenge listeners to competitions of deck building brews, card design, goldfish trivia. Winners get a guest spot. We were actually joking about that the other day that we should we should do that. That would be kinda interesting. Alright. The the first the first question will be when did Seth start playing music? <sighs> <laughs> Gotta sneak it in the podcast somehow. Oh, Seth. we almost made it. We almost made it. 
Legendary Hero 7. For someone interested in having a second modern deck, normally I play Scred. Uh, what decks would you suggest? My thoughts are on Merfolk or Death and Taxes. Uh, I would go with... If those are the choices, I would go with Death and Taxes, I think. Merfolk is... It's surprisingly, because it got more support in Ixalan block, it's kind of like falling down the format rankings a little bit. So I would probably go with Death and Taxes if you're choosing between the two. All right. Uh, Maxi Wawa, Seth, do you edit videos by hand, or do you have something that automatically cuts silent parts? Oh, God, that would be that would be a dream come true. Yes, I. it is all edited by hand, so everything you see is going through there and clipping out the dead spots bit by bit. All right, uh, 11 Vicious, if you could finish the command cycle, i.e. cryptic command, in enemy colors, uh, what would you want the spells to do? Wait, uh, wait, aren't... Is, is he talking about, like, Ojitai's command? Oh, maybe. That must be that cycle, yeah, because Cryptic Command is monocolored. So, I mean, if, Cryptic is the only good command, even of the monocolored, right? You have Profane Command. What's primal's the pretty good. Primal, oh, primal Command's command, pretty good, yeah. yep. What's the red one do? The red one's really bad. Never like, seen it. <laughs> wheels destroys a non-basic land and maybe, like, Pyroclasms or something. But it's, like, five mana. And the white one... The white one, I guess, is good in Commander. Oh, oh Austere Command's used all the time in Commander. Yeah. So if we're gonna... I don't even know. Enemy <sighs> color commands. It's really hard because there's so many mechanics. That'd probably be like yeah. a 20-minute segment of a podcast. It just needs trail. to be good. It just needs to be worth the mana. And I'll take any effect as long as they're good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, God of Grenades. Why no Goldfish Cube? It'd be awesome to have Skube. Scoops Cube and see you guys do content with it. Ooh. Uh, well, the biggest problem with that is uh, Magic Online does not support unofficial cubes, so it would uh, take some work to actually do it. Yeah, I, I think Tomer actually has a cube, right? Someone, I remember someone, someone has a cube. Maybe we can play cube one day. That could be fun. Yeah. I've never played cube ever. I love like, cube. Ever. But... Like, literally ever. Not even the moto cubes. <laughs> like, ever. Uh, I You gotta try it, Richard. It is some of the most fun you'll have. If you like limited, it is the most fun you'll have playing limited. Alright, Ben, time and space. After listening to the cast about the great designer search, I realized that every player tends to have a style of play when it comes to deck building. What were your first styles of decks when you started playing Magic? <laughs> I was I was building so against heroic? the odds decks. No. <laughs> I was <laughs> Richard <laughs> leave me alone uh, no actually I was building against I didn't know they were against odds decks but my first decks I would build were the same type of decks like with some janky combo where the the goal was to pull off this really cool thing and I lost a lot but when I did the really cool thing it made me happy and made up for all the losing so I think the first one was Eon, Eon Storm uh, which is a enchantment lets you remove counters from things to deal damage along with some of the modular creatures uh, and like power conduit and all these ways to like move charge counters and modular counters around so you see back in my day we didn't even have aggro or control <laughs> <laughs> these words didn't even exist so we just built sarah angel decks and ship dragon <laughs> decks and singer vampire decks and air elemental decks uh, you had to have flying otherwise you couldn't block anything <laughs> but yeah we everyone played 20 lands in a 60 card deck no matter no matter what their curve looked like, because there was no curve, uh, we would suspiciously mana weave shuffle. <laughs> just like anything goes. The magic was uh, not as advanced as it was, so we just built whatever we liked. So I think it was mid-range. Everyone kind of played mid-range. Uh, Atomic Sorcery. What cards from post-reserve list 
Arcadia Masks to pre-modern, pre-Mirrodin, would you like to see reprinted in modern? Oh, boy. I don't even know what sets that cover is. All right, I will, I will give you, hang on. So the sets that it would cover would be Onslaught, Legions, Scourge. Also, I believe, oh, man, there's actually a lot. Oh, okay. Then that, the answer is easy. Everything in Onslaught block, please. Give yeah. me the Broken Goblins. <laughs> give me the <laughs> the other Fetchlands. Oh, we already have the Fetchlands. Uh, maybe just the Broken Goblins. Yeah, Broken Goblins would be sweet. There's also Invasion block, Odyssey block, Masks block. So, man, I'd have to look over. I'm sure there's a ton of cards that could actually be pretty sweet, but... All right, next question. New Hall Dan... Personally got into magic when I was younger because I love to draw and found the card artwork really appealing. Do you have any cards that appeal to you because of their artwork? Mine is Jeff Miracola's Raging Goblin art. Ooh. Raging Goblin's a good one. I like uh I think it's let me I think it's called Horrible Horde. I like the the really old yeah, horrible hordes. <laughs> Just the really old, really abstract. What in the world is going on in the magic card art? Those are those are my favorite ones. Like stasis, horrible hordes. Like the really, really early art. Oh, stasis is good. Uh, I like Uzamdjin. That's a good one. I re- I really like. That. I don't know why. I-, I really liked that as a kid. Shiv and Dragon. I thought looked so cool too. Same with the original Sarah Angel. Uh, next question. Uh. Also from Dan, uh, are there any cards you like particular that you particularly love that may not be necessarily good or super competitive? Like while you're drafting or playing Commander, a card came through for you and was super memorable afterwards. Oh man, my, uh, all my decks are built around those kind of cards. <laughs> <laughs> Cobbled wings. I still oh. don't know why people don't like it. It is so good. <laughs> what is good? You just get you just staple it onto your six six vanilla creature, and now you have a six six flying, which is so good. <laughs> you beat me one time in one of our supplemental product videos with cobbled wigs, and that was like years ago. And <laughs> are you and questioning the it. power of cobbled? I mean, this is clearly not the right answer because this is asking for like bad cards, but this card is clearly like top top five draft picks. <laughs> Clinton Reed, 789. Uh, my girlfriend's been playing Modern Burn for a few years. I've been wanting to build her another deck. With Challenger decks and Magic 25, do you think Scred Red would be worthwhile investment into the modern meta? Yes-ish. <laughs> Scred, is, Scred is reasonable. It's not top tier by any stretch. I think it's lower tier than Burn. But if you're buying Scred, you're getting Blood Moons, you're getting uh, Chandra's, and other cards that are a little cheaper right now because of the reprintings and are relevant for other decks. So I think even if you play it for a while and decide, eh, I don't actually want to Scred anymore, you're still going to, you're not going to be wasting too much of the money because you're buying legit cards. All right, Alden B four six one zero. Seth, do you consider? Would you consider a follow up series to budget magic decks? I've broken a modern from your budget spirits decks and have upgraded since, and would love input on the lines of play in this current meta. Ooh, upgraded budget magic videos. We play them occasionally on streams, uh, but we have never done a full series of it. So I will, I will add it to the list. I think it's a cool idea. The challenge is just finding time is always the big problem with adding cool things like that. All right, Tanny Pastel, my friends got me back into magic, but now hardly play. I want to keep playing, but only have played kitchen table format. What are some important etiquette tips if I ever make it to FNM? What was your first FNM like? 
F&M is a great place to start because people... I mean, I guess it depends on the local game store, but hopefully uh, people will be pretty understanding. I definitely remember when I first did that. Uh, people are... <sighs> in general, to me, were pretty helpful with explaining things, and that's a nice part of being kind of less competitive than a GP or something like that, so I don't know if they'll go as far as letting you take things back and stuff, but people were pretty good about it when I first went to F&M. This started, uh, as far as, like, explaining mechanics, sometimes offering hints on uh, lines of play and timing and stuff like that, so. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much the same as Kitchen Table, the the other thing you might see is like people might not let you take back things, so make sure you do things in the right order. People may call judge on you. Don't take that as an insult. It's just getting a judge to come over and help out with the board state. But other than that, it's just like playing kitchen table magic. I it, just have a good time. Don't don't stress out too much about it. Uh, and uh, hopefully it'll all work out. I remember the first time I started playing F and M. I just got back into magic. Showed up with my twenty dollar uh, goblin deck played against this person with all foreign and full art cards so i had no idea what any card did and it was like oh my god please <laughs> I had to like look up oracle text for all the cards i'm like what does celestial purge do i have to look it up but oh. hopefully you don't run into that that's rare uh, and uh, the, my opponent was super friendly. They would sit there and explain all their cards and let me look them up and stuff. So <laughs> Another another good one, actually, is to uh, practice shuffling correctly. Because that's something that I didn't think about when I was just playing casually at kitchen tables. Our rules were so easygoing about stuff like that, where maybe you'd, like, mana weave a little or st- just stuff that flies on the kitchen table. So that's something to look up a YouTube video about the proper way to shuffle and just, like, start practicing that. It's not like you're going to get in trouble if you shuffle improperly, but it's nice to start practicing that if you're going to move from the kitchen table to a, a slightly more competitive environment. Alright, next question. Only way, what would it take for you to read the entire MDG story from KTK until Rick's? Uh, probably a lot. I'm not especially interested in reading MTG novels. <laughs> they need to make like a, a cartoon like a Netflix series. I would watch it. I would, yeah, I would, yeah, I would do that too. Maybe a comic book. I mean, they, they used to make comics, but I don't know. They stopped, like, they actually made, like, little shorts that they put on the Watsy site. I remember reading the comic about Liliana and Garrick on Innistrad or whatever. Like, what happened to those? Yeah, that could be cool. I, I, I can't read anymore. My attention span is gone. <laughs> uh... DPF Junior 1, with the inclusion of Goblin Warchief and Dominaria, do you play it in Goblin 8 Black? If so, how many? And what uh, do you cut? No, I don't think you play it in 8 Black. Uh, but I think that it enables a deck more like the Red Black Goblins deck that we played, where you're going a little bit bigger, maybe playing some Ether Vials, a deck more like the Legacy builds of Goblins. So I don't think you play an 8-Wack in specific, but I think that it can enable a really sweet Goblins deck in Modern. All right, USA Forever 7, will you ever do video content of Paper Magic? Uh, you never know, but it's definitely not something that's uh, impending or happening soon. It's not yeah, in the works yet. It's hard, since everyone is all over the place, plus you need a, a pretty good setup to make it look respectable. 
even Watsy struggles with this. <laughs> we'll be like, what? what's with all the glare, Seth? I can't see anything. <laughs> the fact that we're, like, so spread out is the biggest thing. Like, it would be cool to do a paper commander clash, but that requires getting people from, like, multiple countries and different sides of the U.S. all in the same place. So maybe sometime is, like, a special event if we all make it to, like, a GP or something. But other than that... Uh, Kylio Meters, if you could see a crossover set between MTG and any other franchise, what would you like to see most? Uh, hmm. I'm so salty about Hascon still. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I don't know if I would want a crossover set. That feels weird to me. I, I want crossover promotions. I want, like, Chandra, Torch of Defiance, but instead of Chandra, Chandra is, like, dressed up as say, uh, I don't know, an Overwatch character or something. That'll never happen, right? But, like, kind of like a fun crossover where it's just alternate art. Kind of like the the anime Jason uh, Chandra from the Japanese dual deck, stuff like that. I don't want to see, like, a full-blown set. I don't want to see kind of the the Optimus Prime that we saw at Hascon. I just want, you know, uh, pri- Prime Speaker... Uh, Optimus or Op- Optimus Prime Speaker <laughs> Zagana, I mean stuff like that. I want to see these fun crossovers where it's only art and Oracle text isn't changed. I would be down with that. I I think that could be cool. But yeah, I I wouldn't really like it if cards were actually impacted by it. Yeah. Next question, Nick Gullion. It looks like the CCG artifact has Richard Garfield working on it for years, and they only have four colors. Do you think this is a statement from Garfield saying which color he'd remove from Magic first? It's black, blue, green, red. So no white. Ah, uh, I don't know. I have no. I didn't even know that was a thing. So this is actually. If we had more time, maybe we'll talk about it next week. But apparently, Valve, Valve, big company, hired Richard Garfield to make their next TCG artifact. Apparently, it's some weird MOBA, MOBA TCG thing with lanes. And Richard Garfield has been working on this for a long time, and he's envisioned it from the ground up as a digital thing so this sounds really interesting because richard garfield is the original creator of magic and uh he's a very big he's a pretty big deal and the fact that he's had this like just digital ground up game it's not like hearthstone where it's like still a card game that just happens to be digital but it's made with digital in mind uh could be a big competitor to magic so it is certainly very interesting and keep an eye on it for for more news maybe we'll have a longer discussion yeah and actually, Garfield was uh, designing Dominaria, I believe, as well. He was on the Dominaria design team. So he's still doing magic stuck, uh, stuff every now and then. Yeah, I don't even know how you do that. Like, How do you accidentally not leak things from one company to the other? <laughs> yeah, that is kind of weird. All right. Last question. V guess I like fruit. What are your favorite fruits? Uh, I like anything with berry in it. <laughs> Strawberry, blueberry... I guess bananas are okay, even though they don't have berry in the name. <laughs> uh, I, I like the boring fruits. I like apples. I like bananas. Berries are okay, but only if they're good. I, I feel like you can't get a bad apple. Like, apples are pretty consistent. But if you don't get good berries, they're just not that good. Same with bananas. Bananas are pretty consistent. Yeah, that's uh, that's true. Uh, berries can be a little more hit or miss, but... Do you like cranberries? Cranberries are down the berry ranking but i still like them <laughs> I, I dislike cranberries they're, they're they're like one of these is not the same but cranberries is like kind of they, they kind of just snuck in there somehow with the name 
All right, that's all of our fish mail. Thank you, everyone, for sending them in. You can send them to the hashtag MVGFishMail, and we'll get to your questions on air. Oh, wow. Well, I think that brings us to the end of episode 163. We're already running a little bit longer than normal, but we had a lot of Dominaria news, so I guess that well, makes we sense. We just had to do like four weeks of spoilers in one episode, so. <laughs> uh, that's the worst part about these leaks, is it really is like a month work, uh, worth of content that all of a sudden is dumped on one day, which, oh my goodness. I guess it maybe some people like it if you're not doing content, but from the content perspective, a little bit rough. I'd rather have it spread out a little better, so. Anyway, Richard, Thanks for hanging out. It's always fun. Any last thoughts on Dominaria or anything before we take off for the day? No, I, I think just keep go back, go back and read some more. There's so many cards. Like every time I do a pass on, I'm like, oh, I didn't realize this card was here. <laughs> it's so hard when you can't sort by rarity and like there's no art to distinguish the cards. It's it's very difficult. <laughs> yeah, I'm like kind of waiting at this point. Like I read over the spoiler and did a couple videos, but I just gotta wait. It is super hard to actually make sense of it without the art or anything. So. Anyway, Richard, thanks for hanging out. It's always a blast. And thank you to everyone for listening. So this is episode 163 of the MTG Goldfish podcast wrapping up for this week. Thanks for listening. And uh, yeah, we'll be back next week. The crew signing out.